Could be happening. Michael Flanders, how are you, mate? I'm great. How are you, Mr. Phillips? I'm good, buddy. Well, we, we go back more than 30 years, you know. Um, I would say, I, I mean, we met before you went to the US, but we collaborated in probably 93, would you think? Yeah, we, well, I remember we met before the States because that was around 92. I went to live in the States yep. and, and you were playing with Looking for Cool and I was playing with Angie and John and Maria Brosnan in yep, my band. Correct. I remember yep. that then and I went over and I remember when I came back, you were working for, uh, well, it was Manic back then, I think. But well, Yep, which were, correct. And you, yep. You, booked, you booked me into places like Friday's Mavula Bar, mate, where I, I must have been the easiest gig ever. I just stayed there for 10 years then. Eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Manny had mentioned that you were coming back and wanted me to assemble some people to put around you, if you remember. Yeah, so yeah, we, yeah. Uh, I think it was Gary, Derek, and I think myself put a little that's band it. together. And yeah, we, right. yeah, we played Fridays. We played all the poetry and beer record we had rehearsed. So. That's right. You had your poetry yeah. and beer over there in Los Angeles. And Mate, that was that was a trip back in those days because I, I got into the states. That was we arrived there just the week after the Rodney King riots had gone on, and there was like, yeah, we're we're about to catch a plane. Mm. And my, my friend Adam Smalley would call him and say, "Is it safe to come over?" And he's like, "Yeah, come on over, come on over," you know. And this is before stuff started getting into the crossing those invisible boundaries in LA. We got into some of those regions where, yeah, the, the rich people started getting scared. And um, mate, it, was, it was a freaky time over. I mean, the music was great. Doing what I did with the music was great. But, but mate, you've just uh, returned from the Nashville life for, uh, what, 12 years now? 13 years, yeah. 13 years, yeah, yep. Yeah. yeah, we went over in the very beginning of 2007. So it would be 13 years this February. So nearly 13 years. And this is how Australian you are, mate. You, you, you didn't pick up one ounce of American accent. No, a lot of people said that. I mean, the kids have obviously got, the two little kids have got complete American drawls. You know, Jasmine's worse than Caleb, which are our 18-year-old twins. So they were four when we went. Um, ben was 12, he's 26. Um, so he has a bit of a hybrid accent. And uh, as you probably noticed, when you talk to your friends, I, actually, I, I spoke to one of my American friends just before and you tend to then all of a sudden fall into what they understand. But here, I mean, it was pretty hard for me to have an American accent at 40 something when I went over, you know? Yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> um, I, I think too, mate, you've got, you've got such Aussie blood running through your veins that would never really. Oh, yeah. uh, and, and, and the last thing I wanted to do was conform to their accent. Of course, the Aussie thing was makes you, uh, you know, stand apart from the whole thing, you know, and you are what you are. So I never try to change it. I'm, a lot of people, you hear them try and put a fake accent on. It's like, oh, come on, you know, you know. It's I remember, remember the only problem I had was going into the, the, um, the shop and asking for a straw. And this girl just looking at me, well, what? A straw? I had to be a straw. She got got one says she got it, but one says straw. I wonder what you're going to do with it too. You looked like a rock star back in '91. I'm, you know. So mate, did it did it ever feel like home for you over there? I imagine it did. Completely. Yeah. Completely. I mean, I, I've made the mistake over the last week or so saying home and that's there, you know. Yeah. Oh, when we're back home, uh, it felt the house, last house we had, I felt very comfortable. It was very homely. It had spaces for us all to go to our own space and work or meditate or do whatever you want to do. Um, wonderful views of the lake. 
Um, it was a very big house. It was a three-story house, so it was easy to escape from each other. Um, at night, I could go downstairs and practice my steel guitar and make noise and not bother anybody, you know. Yeah. So that become, you know what that's like. Home is where your pillow is kind of thing. And when your pillow is there for so long, and it was the kind of house that just made you feel good when you're in it. So when COVID hit, it wasn't, well, I was already working from home. So it wasn't like I was changing anything. <laughs> I just had to put a mask on if I went to the store, you know. Um, Obviously, so, like people here and musicians here and everything, Nashville's got that um, aura about it of being this special, amazing place and everything else. And it's not a very big city, is it? Um, I think it's going to become another Atlanta. There's so many people moving there. But I mean, it's when we first got there, it felt more like a country town. Brisbane felt like it was really being, you know, getting very congested with traffic. And I actually, one of the frustrations I remember before I left, <clears throat> I was actually on my mobile phone uh, going to a gig, ringing your wife, actually saying, hey, I'm late to this gig. I'm, I'm caught in traffic. And then I got booked on my mobile phone. Oh. And I was thinking when I left, damn, you know, this is just getting crazy. You can't do anything on the road here. And then I got there and it was completely relaxed. I drove around that city for 13 years with never getting any speeding parking fine at all. Yeah, right. Funny. So they're very lax on some things. So, uh, and other things, obviously, they're not, you know. Yeah. And what about the recent, all the turmoil lately? How was that? How, was, how did that affect you and the family? Like, did it, well, did it affect we, you? It actually did spread out in some areas close to us when the rioting was happening. And obviously we could hear things and there was a lot of gunshots going on. And, um, but, and they did try to burn down the Capitol building and all that kind of craziness. Uh, so I think we were, far, we were 30 minutes from the downtown area. Um, our son was technically just to the right of downtown. So he saw a lot. He saw a lot with the tornado. He woke up in the morning after that. So basically it started a tornado, COVID-19, Black Lives Matter rioting back to COVID-19. So Ben, ben uh, woke up, opened his curtains, and there was a car in the third floor of the building across from him. And he slept through the whole tornado. <laughs> And then realised that he had no power and then him and his fiancée moved in with us then for the next so many months. They moved in and then they, because he had no power, for a few days and then they came back the whole three months of shutdown. We, we, had, we, we had the um, earthquake in 94, Northridge earthquake, and that was where some freeways fell down, shopping centres fell down, and there were about 80 people killed, I think, in L.A., it was a big yeah. earthquake and scared the hell out of, us, out of us. But when we first got there, I slipped through the first earthquake we had. I like <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little one. I we were too. You know, we um, we had um, uh, someone letting a shotgun off down our our main street. Just we were on the corner of a main street in a cove, mm. and uh, my oldest daughter come to stay with us a couple of Christmases ago, and she thought we were playing tricks on her, shooting a gun off out the window to scare her. It was actually a real gun. <laughs> well, that, that, was, that was one of the things that brought us home. We just didn't, we never felt comfortable in LA with the whole gun culture thing. And I mean, we, we, we lived in a bit of a redneck area in LA at the time. We were down near Redondo Beach. It was sort of a little bit off the, the highway and, you, you know, and it was kind of, um, 
kind of fairly safe around there, but we had a cop shot just up the road from us. And, and yeah, you'd be driving home from the studio at three or four in the morning and you'd, you know, you'd always see cops with people lined up against the wall and guns out and this stuff. And... Yeah, that would freak me out. Yeah, I didn't see much of that. And we lived in a, a very nice neighbourhood. The houses at the end of our street were more expensive as our, our house, but, you know, they one of them to solve well over a million dollars. So it was... It was on the water, very classy, nice homes. There's three got a coves in a row with very kind of some, you know, a lot of music people. Um, Garth Brooks's label manager for Pearl lived in the next street. Um, Lizzie Hale and Joe from Hailstorm, the famous rock band. Um, so there's a few music folks. Um, Larry Carlton, um, we bought a house out there on the lake. Um, so we, I never really felt threatened. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, my, my, my neighbours would shoot a beaver or shoot something themselves alone, you know. Um, but they were kind of, we were the youngest in the street, so that'll tell you. Well, well I think that's where LA was different back then anyway because it was real gang culture then and you had the bloods and the oh, going on. And, and yeah. you'd be sitting in the shopping centre and, yeah, school kids would walk by. And because the school kids were all kind of in the gangs and they were wearing the loose clothing, you'd always be watching them. And I remember sitting back home when we came home, sitting at Stafford Shopping Centre. And I was what these school kids are walking by and I was just keeping my eye on them and I'm calling my eye and Andrew's like, mate, we're back here now. You, you don't have to do that here. Exactly. The other thing was carjacking was big over there then too. So every time you turn up to the setup, you know, pull up at a red light, you'd always make sure your windows were up, your doors were locked, you'd look around. <laughs> you'd get back, back here and it'd be like, you just felt like stupid doing it. But uh, so yeah, there, yeah. There's, there was good things for getting home. But but mates, it's really good that, um, you know, I'm, I'm obviously as a, uh, mate, I'm, I'm glad you're back here and um, you got all that wealth of, we've all got that wealth of knowledge and skills and everything to tap into, mate, that you, you learnt over there. So what did your, what was your musical journey over there? What, what was your career? What did you do? Well, in the, I think, you know, leaving here um, at that point in my career, you know, I was making, as you know, a lot of records for people in the country music industry and um, getting sort of poached out of that and then running having the producer skills and the musician skills and the publishing concepts. Um, I think, you know, the typical Aussie, I thought I knew everything uh, until I got there and knew nothing, you know. So it took me some time to then readapt to the American uh, system, you know, having multiple performing rights organisations and, and then understanding how they all interact with, with the writers and so I, was a, I did music publishing and the demos for the publishing company. Uh, for the first few years, uh, we built the catalogs um, and that was kind of fun. Um, a lot of songwriting, so that was fun. Um, my wife did a bunch of songwriting too. And then as you know, my son then developed into a, a musician, songwriter, guitar player. Yeah, we'll definitely um, talk about Ben in a while, but just for people who maybe don't know much about it, just want to give a bit of an explanation for how the song publishing works because I think it's yeah for a lot of younger artists here it's not because it's not as big an industry here it's kind of gets overlooked in a lot of their education or their yeah. well, I think that you know over there as you know I think the you know, TV creates fantasy but to remove the fantasy you know people in that culture will Sometimes, not so much anymore, as much as they used to, but it was a very song publishing, pitching, songwriters town when we got there. So meaning that if you, they call it an outside song. So 
let's just say, let's just build this around you for a minute. So let's say you were in Nashville, you were a signed songwriter to a publishing company. The publisher's job would be to exploit the copyrights in the song, meaning pitch that, you know, create a really good demonstration of the song and then pitch that to all the possibilities to get it cut on a big record from an artist that's signed to a major record label. That is, that is the main focus of a publisher. Um, now so it's turned more into a boutique record town where that still goes on, uh, just not as much. Um, so a lot of artists now write their own material or it's then getting to co-write with the artist supposed to, you could write with two other writers and then a Clint Black or a Garth Brooks would cut that song and make you, you know, a lot of money because when a song sits in the top 10 for six weeks, you know, you can make, that songwriter could make 300 to a million dollars, depending on how much airplay that song's getting, you know. And has it got affected by, you know, back in you know, our day, mate, when you had the albums or CDs, if you got your song on a, you know, a Rick Springfield album, it didn't have yep. to be the hit single, but you know you would make money because the album would sell. Has that changed yes. a lot now with the streaming game where, you know... Well, yeah, well, to me, it's become... And you notice it more than, you know, reverting back to your, my normal life as a record maker. Most artists now come to producers and want... It's a singles game. So, you know, you're doing, they're doing a lot more singles and they're putting a lot more singles out a lot quicker than they ever used to. And then eventually it becomes an album... On, on that platform, but... Um, I, hope, I hope it goes around, like the cycle goes around to like a, a song collection again, because I just remember how cool it was when I was watching a thing the other night, Paul McCartney live with Wings. And, you know, yeah. it obviously wasn't his highlight compared to the Beatles, but mate, I remember when Venus uh, and Mars came good. Out, well, I, Me too. Yeah. I, I love that album. And I, I you'd, you'd study the, every, everything written in it. And Jackson Brown's Running on Empty was probably my favourite album of all time. And I knew every linear note on it and I just... Yeah, yep. just going on that journey, and it wasn't just about well, that song or that hit. It was the whole thing of the collection. You just hit on Jackson Brown for a second. You know, Jackson said on that documentary that's you know available to the public, um, and you know, I like to still call them records because yeah. they're a, they, because it's a record of events, and I thought he said it the best. That is so true, because you know, you being a songwriter. When I go back to the time when you and I collaborated on uh, Four Poet Steps or, you know, songs from the fourth floor, you were writing, you were like Bernard Fanning calls it a purple patch. You know, you'll write because you're excited to write because you're writing for a record. And all those songs, are what's happening in your existence at that point in time. And I think that's what's beautiful about a real artist. I find, you know, you can be a great songwriter and you can write a great song and someone then has to connect with that song to want to love it that much to then cut it on their record as an outside song. That's why you notice I still get, even now, uh, I'm still working for two publishers over there. I get the Sony tip sheet and the tip sheet, they call it a tip sheet from, um, from Warner Brothers. And, and they, you know, on there explaining all the artists that are signed to those labels and what they're all looking for. Um, 
and it'll explain, you know, I'm only looking for singles. We've cut 10 songs, we're looking for two singles, you know, which means the artist has written 10 songs with other writers and they haven't written something strong enough to be a single, you know. Uh, um, I, think, I think that's one of the great things too. You've got to give him credit for what um, Ed Sheeran's done from a, like a singer-songwriter. He's like a throwback to the, the James Taylor, Jackson Brown sort of guys with an acoustic guitar in hand. But people have yeah. actually, his, his album's come out and there's, okay, pretty much every song on the album has become a hit song. But he's actually, yeah. his album have been something that, that, that people have gotten into, their actual albums. And I, yeah, I, I see on the horizon it will get back to that a, a bit because, we, you know, there's always these troughs and lows and cycles that go around. And I think people do get hungry for com- a bit more complexity. And I think while there's, oh, you know, while, while a song is good, the journey with an artist can be yeah. amazing. Well, I think thinking people, we're looking for stuff like, you know, you know, you're in the same spot as me now where we have kids that are pushing music onto us, you know, and, uh, and it's great that you're, you know, my youngest son is kind of into the Americana kind of country thing that I am. Well, I heard Jason, and, Jason told me that he mixed some of his stuff he produced over there just the other day and thought it was awesome. Yeah, I know. It's scary, isn't it? Man, he's a great little, his ears are amazing as a producer. I mean, some of the songs are very anthemic and uh, he's working with this singer-songwriter that uh, from New York, actually. Um, that, that, of course, is, we're talking about Caleb Flanders, so just folks know yes. the name and look yeah. out for that up-and-coming yeah. producer of the future and, and yeah, awesome yeah. bass player too, by the way. He calls himself the okayest bassist on Instagram. <laughs> I, I always, I always thought you, of course, were one of the best guitarists in the whole country, and um, oh. I, I, I hear that you've you've certainly been knocked down a few ranks by um, uh, your elder son. Oh well, that that, that wouldn't be too hard. I, I think the good thing is, is we 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 actually play nothing alike, which is good. Um, <laughs> he's kind of more melodic and sweet, like his mother's playing, you know. Uh, he's kind of taken that side. I I think that he's more poppy and um, and I'm more grainy, you know. So Caleb's more grainy, Ben's more poppy, you know. But there's, a, there's certainly uh, some. Um, there's so much. That, what's the name of his um, release he just did? The album. Ben's. Yeah, Ben's. Uh, yeah. Gravity. Uh, gra- zero gravity. Zero gravity. That's it. Sorry, zero gravity. Yeah. Mate, that is yeah. such great playing. If you. Folks, we're talking about Mike's uh, older, older son, yeah. Ben Flanders, and Zero Gravity is an album he put out. But, mate, just tell everyone a bit about the other stuff Ben's been doing because he's, he's been rocking the free world. So, um, so, Ben, um, during COVID, um, Ben had collaborated, in early COVID, he had collaborated with an artist signed to Candy Rat, which is, if you're, if you're at all ever, if you're not or you are... Um, um, there's an artist by the name of Andy McGee or McKee, I think it is McKee or McGee, and he's like a really amazing acoustic guitar player. Andy McKee, I think it is. Yeah, Andy McKee. And um, we we'd been kind of hip to this guy for a long time, and um, but we didn't really know what label he was signed to or whatever. But anyway, Ben did this collab with this other guy. I can't remember the guy's name. He's a really amazing electric guitar player. And he was the first signing, I think, to Candy Rat because Candy Rat don't do or weren't doing electric guys. They were just doing acoustic guys. All these amazing two-handed guys doing freaky stuff on acoustics. Um, not, not a lot of that Tommy Emmanuel style of chet picking. It was all very new age kind of cool things. And uh, um, there's probably some of those chet kind of guys signed there too, but not a lot, I don't think. Anyway, he, the label reached out to Ben 
um, because he made a video of it and and they were really impressed by obviously the amount of likes or views or downloads, whatever, I don't know. And, uh, and so they offered him a deal and it was a pretty good deal. I ended up going through the contracts with him and then talking to the label guy over the phone and the guy, he kind of was like, oh, man, I'd like to talk to you more about publishing, you know. Um, so they're more of a modern label and they, they don't operate like a normal label either. They, being virtuosos that they sign, they make their money from, um, obviously from sponsorship things. They make their money from the downloads and the purchase of the tablature. Um, so all these other things opposed to just, you know, a digital download. So uh, they then funded the two videos or one video you might see up. I think he's put tilted up now. Um, so they gave him a budget to shoot five, uh, two videos. So he went down to, uh, to Georgia, to Atlanta, and they hired a nice studio to do the video sh shoot. And then they offered him another budget to go and do a couple more. So, uh, so yes, yeah, so just back a little bit. Um, so it was kind of interesting that, you know, he was a drummer when we moved to America. He then got hip to guitar. I had given him a guitar that I had hanging on the wall in my Australian studio when I went back for a trip and I handed that to him and I said, this is a guitar that, you know, your grandfather had, or your pop had, uh, had refinished. I said, this is something you should have. And then he started getting good on that, sold it like everything, you know. Um, anyway, long story short, um, he had met all kinds of different kids at the different school he was at. So he met Ethan Forrest, which was Shannon Forrest's son. Shannon now plays with Toto but he met Robin Ford and Michael McDonald and all these guys at Shannon's place and Steve Lukather. So Steve tells Music Man about this prodigy <laughs> and they, they sign him, Music Man signed him at 16. So he's the youngest in the world to be signed to Music Man Guitars. Oh, wow. And then he's, he's still with Music Man now. So, uh, but one of the guitars, just as an off story, turns up at my door one day. It was uh, Ronnie Wood's guitar. <laughs> Ronnie had and had still had the scratches from the last Rolling Stones tour on the back oh um, from Ronnie's belt. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, dude, you've got to buy this one. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm just going to use it on the tour, you know, like, yeah, okay, yeah. whatever. Yeah, some old yeah. guy used to own it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. And he got a bunch of Paul Reed Smith sent him a bunch of guitars when he first started with Scott, um, Scott Stapp, which is his normal job, which is the singer from Creed. So Ben's, um, Ben's a, the st standard guitarist in, in Scott he's Stapp. The, um, he's the musical director for the Scott Stapp, the voice of Creed. We'd see so, on sometimes when we, we haven't got Netflix anymore, but we used to have it here and they had Fox News we'd watch and every now and then Fox News would have, um, uh, I'm, I'm sorry to say we watched Fox News, but yeah, you, you, get, you get a balanced thing by watching both of them. But every now and then they have these music treats going on. And um, they'd have these performances, and what, a couple of them were Scott, and Ben was on, would come on the screen, and all the family would run out and check out Ben playing. It was great. Yeah, I know. We, we missed it. They were always too early, so we just got <laughs> photographs of it, you know. And he, but, he, he auditioned for <laughs> He was going to go on the road with Madonna too, wasn't he, at one stage? He, he was going to do the audition for Madonna, uh, and all kinds of weird political things happened. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, let's not go into that. That was a whole different story, yeah. <laughs> I can imagine that'd be a world you'd want to avoid, pretty much. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, she was on that list, so let's just say that. So, yeah. uh, um, but um, he, um, there's another country gig in town that 
you, there's a couple of guys, and I don't know them, and I believe they're Australian, but they're called Seaforth. And, um, and so his friend, Elliot Huff, which is Dan Huff's kid, um, he's been playing with them. And then he went from there, they got signed and Dan did the record. And then he went, now he's playing with Kane Brown. And so they've asked Ben to, to do some shows when they get back on with that. So he's gonna try and do both if he can and do a country gig and the rock gig. So we'll Mate, do you reckon Ben would mind if we played one of his tracks? Oh God, no. No, I'll play that now. So, Mike, one of the things that I know people here don't really 
<laughs> it's hard to understand sometimes is when we lived in LA, people we knew knew people and it wasn't, you know, you saw famous people around the place pretty much all the time. But mate, just put things in context. You you work with people like um, Dolly Parton and things like that, didn't you? Well, I um, I was really tight with her people, Danny Nozell, and he had a, you know Donny Dolly was his main act. He had you know Bon Jovi, he had a Richie Sambora, Meatloaf. I mean, he just went on and on and on. He actually used to manage Slipknot. But, yeah. um, so to kind of the perspective. Um, it's kind of, how do I put it, without sounding kind of silly, it's kind of normal life there with people that are kind of famous-ish because they're just, they don't treat you any different, you don't treat them any different. So, and it's just, a, and it's a job you're doing, you know, like some of the, you know, I was talking to a buddy today about it. It was kind of funny, he was name dropping. And I said, I got a phone call one day when I was in Los Angeles actually, it's funny because uh, Danny and Dolly were in the same building as I was staying and I didn't even know they were there. And, uh, and then he called me and said, you know, he, he had kind of like a mobster kind of voice, you know, he, you know, sounded like the mafia, you know, cause he was Italian. Um, and he said, uh, Hey, where, where are you? You know? And I said, I'm actually on a plane about to fly back to Nashville. I'm in LA. He goes, oh, I'm in LA too. And uh, he said, uh, Dolly and I are about to get on a plane and go, go to Australia. He said, I, I, I'm going to invite your mum and dad. I got platinum passes for them to come to Dolly's show. Do you think they'd be interested? I said, absolutely. <laughs> and my mum got these platinum passes. I think they were like $350 a ticket or something stupid. Maybe way more expensive. I don't know. But she said she was so close she could touch Dolly. That's how close she was. Wow. She was the most amazing show I've ever had. But the funny thing is guys like that, they don't need to ring you up and give you gifts like that, you know. No, no, um, but you, you always find the attitude and the, like the, the star problems with the new ones who've just made it because they're still going yeah, yeah. to prove themselves. But yeah. the ones who've been there all their life, like when we were in Cherokee, we'd be recording and Cherokee had like these six studio, five studios in the building. And studio, you know, you'd, in one you'd had spin doctors working and then next door mm. where we were working, Gene Simmons was, was producing Lita Ford and then you had... Um, uh, what's what was Bob Dylan's son name? Wallflowers. Um, yeah, he'd be yeah, Jake, popping. In, Jake. Yeah, Jacob, he'd be popping in to see the the Rob brothers that we were working with. Or yeah, Ice T was doing an MTV interview out in the lounge, and it was just these. Yeah. But it was it was all these people. LL Cool J. I remember I met him then. He was so nice. So no one was being stars. They were just being musos. Oh, totally. That, that was know, a, well, that was different. Well, do, do, Dolly doesn't put on any airs and graces in. Right life you know what I mean she doesn't and she just lived close to us too she lived around the corner she had a lake home and she still had her Brentwood home mm. um, but she makes up like she makes up exactly how you see her before she comes out of a room every day but of course so, you never did a strange world too I remember one of my big heroes I remember you mentioned to me one time it was a um, an interesting personality it was Carol King I think you said I never met Carol. No, but Mark Coleman worked with Carol, but I never got to meet Carol. Okay. Um, no. Um, no, no. Holman, um, he moved from where you know wherever they were, Los Angeles, to Austin to to make the one to one Carol King record. Um, but uh, Eric Johnson also worked with Carol King too. So, uh, so, so Matt, with everything you know now, I mean, because you did film work over there as well too, right? Yeah. Yep. Yep. And everything you've learned, like 
back in 96, 97, you had an, a label here called Arctic, which became a yep. sub-label of BMG. And, and um, we had Chase's album, our music came out there and we had Four Poet Steps, my album came out through it. And, yep. and it was, it was an interesting time. It was like the pioneering days for, in many ways. It was like um, breaking new ground. You guys were progressing stuff yep. that was happening in Brisbane and flying blind with a lot of yep. stuff you were learning. What would you, you what would you do knowing what you do now? If you were transported back to 96, 97, what would you have done different now to what happened then with, with the way you approached all that? Um, probably know now what the budget would be. I actually would need to do the job properly. Right. I probably wouldn't wouldn't venture into it without the budget. Because we did that in the States. It was kind of good because the last probably five or six years, I got to work with some of the biggest radio promoters in the country. I got to work with some of the biggest labels in the country. Um, and, you know, even a little publisher label that I'm still working with now, I mean, he's spending in the thousands every week right now on a small indie country artist. He's actually getting traction. Um, so it's kind of funny that, you know, you can... It's such a different world. I had a meeting with the what uh, he. You may remember a label. It, it, it's called um, Broken Bow, and um, Jason Aldean was broken through Broken Bow. That's the label he was signed to. It was owned by a guy that that his name was Benny Brown. That that had a bunch of car yards up in California, and he made millions. And he came to, to Nashville, and his nephew was a lawyer, a music lawyer. Anyway, long story short, took them ages, but eventually they broke Aldean and Aldean, the rest is history, you know. But he said to me, I was sitting in his office only a few months ago, probably in the cold months, probably, you know, March this year. Um, and he said, if I see an artist that gets at least 15,000 subscribers on YouTube, I'm looking at signing them. Yeah. If they're in yeah. So there's the numbers. I mean, those numbers are very small. So, I mean, you know... That's what struck me, struck me back in the 90s was when we were working with the Robs and they were, you know, they, they kind of had been successful engineers through the 80s and 70s even and uh, Atlantic Crossing and Michael Jackson and Paul McCartney, they'd worked on those things and they got out of producing for a while. But when we were there, they just finished doing um, Come On Feel the Lemonheads with the Lemonheads and that went gold. And they, were, they knocked back doing Guns N' Roses and all these other things. But all the album budgets were like, even in the 90s, were like 250, 300 grand for the budgets. And you, yeah. you're sort of coming from Australia, you go, well, how, how does that work? And it's something, yeah. it's something I see not just in music too. Here, one thing about Australia and one thing we, I think we struggle with is we're kind of isolated from the real industry, world industries in some way. And yeah. even... Even what yeah. I, my journey yeah. in China, you know, I, I had a lot of strong relationships there and I got drawn out of my music into trying to have it, make things work by you know, helping out and getting involved in other business areas. Uh, but the thing is, you talk to Australian businesses about the opportunities they could step into. And the attitude here was always, well, how do we minimize what we have to spend and how do we just kind of leverage it so we don't have to take any risk? And yeah. that's impossible in those markets. You can't. So you're always trying to do things for people where they haven't got the budget. They don't actually want to really expose it. You get them to a point and they're not prepared for it. Whereas I did find in America that when someone decided they were going to back something, they actually backed it to the point where it could work properly. Well, and it comes down to the personality, as you know. I mean, I, I, I've come across that personality all the time, even in America. I think, I think it's more when they 
put something out in the record side and they realize they need to really inject some cash to push it over the edge, they'll do it. Um, and it's easier for managers in Sony or Warners to be spending money that's not theirs. As soon as it's private capital, you go back to that attitude again. Okay. So, so here in know, Australia, I mean, we always had the situation where there were a few channels that made things work, right? Whether it was Michael Gadinsky or Sony or or you know, Chuggies yeah. or whatever. If, if you go, in, in the 80s particularly, you got signed with one of those organisations, you were going to have a hit. You are going to you know, do well. Was it the same over there or were, like, were there sort of little bottles that people had to be involved with well, to be successful or was it wider? You know, a lot of my early days, I was spoilt by being having a budget to record really good demos and really good stuff and have no risk and, you know, just motor along doing what we loved. Um, then when I stepped into having to do things a different way, it was kind of like reverting back to how I operated here, except the talent, um, the, the talent was, you know, how do I put it? The talent's always good if they've got, you know, a budget behind them, you know? Um, you didn't really find that shitty artists had money. You know, where you find that a lot here where, you know, more of a substandard artist you know, the great artists will turn up, they've got no money, and the crappy artists turn up, and they've got tons of money, and you can't do anything. You know, they're normally I found that they'll put some money behind something that's good. Yeah. Um, and even, even average there is good, you know. Um, so I was, I, I, I got involved in, you can see this on YouTube, is a song called My America, and this African American uh, record label called American, what are they called? Um, American United something, I don't know, anyway, it's a long name and they hired me to do this single uh, actually, I actually end up doing like six or seven sides for them but I was friends with Trick Pony which were Warner Brothers act they, I think they were like a goal selling artists mm. um, they were originally two guys and a girl and then she broke away and had a solo career, her name was Heidi Newfield and you would have seen that I want to love like Johnny and June song, it's huge millions of views on YouTube. And so she was a curb artist. And um, so I was, I was friendly with them. So I, I, they wanted um, like a, a male and a female white artist to collaborate with him. So I went to them. He had the budget and it wasn't cheap. We hired them. And so we did this, you know, collaboration between Trick Pony and this other artist. Um, and, we, you know, then we hired... You know, Nicole Zeller, which is uh, Brickshaw Media out of Nashville, very well-known publicity company, you know, and that's thousands of dollars a week, a month, sorry. And then we hired uh, Tim Riley, which you'll hear him on one of my podcasts, um, famous, famous record promoter guy. So he, get, he then gets all this, the single on all these specific radio programs like Sunrise America and blah, blah, blah. So mate, mate, that's just, sorry, sorry to interrupt you, but just so your, your podcast can be found at themichaelflanders.com, right? Um, that's my website, but if you just go to YouTube and type in Michael Flanders podcast, all my favorite ones pop up there anyway. Oh, wow. So, all, and all those, all those old videos, mate, you used to put up those homemade, you know, wild videos. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah there's stuff with me, you know, naked in the pool and all that stuff. <laughs> it's still up there. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah that'll probably be more exciting than my podcast. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> but sorry to, sorry to um, if, if I ask some questions here that you don't want to go down that road, that's fine. Just we don't have to, but... For, I think from an Aussie living here and you're looking 
at America and we get hit bombarded with the media in our lounge room, you know, constantly. Living in Nashville, what was the, the racial thing like? Did, was there racial tension around your neighbourhoods or was it was a, a, a very much nah. a stronghold? Or no, 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 not in my, in, in my, my kids kind of went, at one point they went to a, a school called uh, Good Pasture, it was a very Good Pasture Christian school. And, uh, and so they, that, you had to have money to go there, you know. I mean, the school fees alone were costing me over $2,000 a month, you know. Um, so they had a lot of, um, you know, white and black friends and they were classy, you know. So they made friends there and then they went, Caleb then went to the National School of the Arts and then Caleb being, and Jasmine acting and Caleb being a bass player, um, after that they decided to go there. Uh, and they both had such a wonderful experience there. And that school was predominantly black. So the image you, here, the image you have of Nashville is kind of a white town. That's not true. It is very racial. No, yeah. no, no, no. And you've got to remember, you've got, you know, you've got, you know, the, um, you know, the projects and, you know, so, they're, they're, you know, you've got to remember before, you know, country music and whatever, you're, you're in the South, you're in the deeps, you're in, yeah. you're in Tennessee, you know, it's Middle Tennessee, it's called, yeah. so where we were. So you've got, you know, Arkansas not far, the Mississippi not far, you've got Kentucky not far, you've got Georgia not far, all touching that state. But so amongst your, amongst your friends, did you find, did they have racist tendencies or is it kind of... You'll get... You know, with, with probably shouldn't even say this on, on a recording, but, um, you know, you would have obvious redneck men in the music industry that are racists, without a doubt. Um, then some of my good friends' children married African-Americans. Um, my daughter's two best friends are African-Americans. Caleb had some black friends and white friends. Her black friends would sleep over at our house yeah. all the time. Yeah. She was on FaceTime with them today. You know, so we had them in our home, beautiful kids. So yeah. it just depends. I think that, you know, a couple of artists I've worked with out of Alabama, you know, they were kind of that way, you know, but you don't know sometimes whether they're joking or they're not joking. And you, you don't know, know so. the background, what they've gone through and all that. You can't judge. No, it. no, no, no. You know, so I'm but not I think it, it, it's people really, especially Australian music industry, I don't think really understand America at all. And I think I didn't either. I think we really fantasize about America. We really think it's so much opportunity. They don't realize how good they got it here and how much money they're making here. And if they realized what kind of salaries people were on over there, and even the musicians, like, you know, one of my dear friends, who's, I believe, probably in one of the greatest steel guitar players in the world and dobro players, who's made good money doing different things. Um, he was playing with two, and I won't mention who he is or the bands, but let's call it very famous bands he played with. Yep. He was only making 50,000 a year. Yep. And I've spoken to guys here and they think, oh God, I met blah, blah, blah. Oh, they must be making so much money. Well, they got no idea they're making no money. <laughs> you know, some of them might be making $350 a night on tour and they're traveling in a bus 90% of the time. As you know, they're sleeping on the bus. There's no more accommodations like it used to be in motels and stuff. Um, the main artist sometimes flies in, doesn't even get to be on the bus. Yeah. And, um, and they're on a sweaty bus driving around the South, you know. Well, mate, so, back in those days when it was all kind of, you know, everything was 
there's cash going everywhere. People forget the fact that all those all those things were billed to the bands, and all those bands are now in debt or never actually got out of debt because they owed so much money. Well, that's right. That's right. And, and talking about Dolly, for instance, Danny jumped on the Dolly train because she was spending she was spending more than she was making on tour. I mean, he met her, and this is what he told me. I don't know how true it is, but he met her, and she was worth about four hundred million. She's a billionaireess now. And she was touring and losing money touring. She was like, how can I be losing money? And he actually was an accountant and he went on and showed her how he was, she was losing money. So, I mean, it's, it's really those elaborate kind of touring, you know, those days are gone. Yeah. You know, those days are gone. People are trying to make money. The fact that streaming has taken, you know, major income away from us yeah. You know, that's the only way they're making money well, that, is merchandise and touring, you know? Yeah, well, that was a big thing. I mean, I've, I'm, one thing I've tried to be as vocal as I can as I'm getting online and talking to people is the fact that, you know, obviously COVID's been disastrous for the industry, but it was it happened before then as well. We, there were, you know, in the old days, we could sell CDs. You could have a product to sell. You could do your show. You could sell your merch, everything else. But suddenly CD sales were gone and streaming. Streaming's only got some value to those artists who can stream millions of tracks. For your average yes. local artist, you, I wouldn't make enough money to buy a cup of coffee a year out of streaming. No, well, a guy I, said to me today, he said to me today in a meeting, he said, oh, look, if I do blah, 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 I'm going to make rah, rah, rah. And I'm like, no, you're not. <laughs> From a publishing standpoint, I'll tell you exactly what you're going to make. <laughs> Um, uh, seven albums out maybe 100 songs streaming or whatever and and yeah. say mate if i if i made 20 bucks a year out of it that would be a- no, well i got i can tell you you know we have a title that's done over a million streams and it's a co-write and i think from one song we've made 750 dollars yeah and that's it over a million streams so mate, there's got to be something along the way we can put pressure on there is. I want to ask you something here about Nashville and the second structure there. What, I'll just explain here first. One of the things that's annoyed me with this whole COVID thing is that the industry's been squashed. Not only did we lose streaming, but we then lost our only form of income, which was live music. And so yes. Yes, almost everyone was screwed. And what that's gonna, how that's going to come out, we don't know the whole thing of it. But people are still loving music. They're still listening to music. Music's an important part of our life. Now, I think now's the time to reset the industry a bit and it's not about politicians or, or you know political parties putting money into arts councils to fund a project or this project we need to get some structure around the gig economy so that musicians mate i'm probably the world's worst person for looking at a bank statement i literally go into a panic attack you know i i'm not good at that side of things and a lot of musos are kind of like that you know we need to be free to do our creative thing but the business thing doesn't always work well i'd love to see a structure put in place whereby say when you do a gig Money can be paid to an entity where you get paid through that entity, your tax gets taken out, super gets taken out. And we've actually prepared the, the grassroots industry for situations like we've just had where when, when we hit a bump in the road, we don't all fall like a house of cards. We have nothing mm. like that here. We used to have the musicians' union back in the eighties. Mm. Well, it still which, operates like that in America. Well, that's what I like to know, mate. What yeah. what is their system they have there that we could maybe yeah. be looking at? Well, it's very different. Again, there's, there's there's layers of it there, and I'll start from one end so you understand. So, if you were, you know, Lee Bryce or someone, you know, that's a solo artist or whoever you want to name, you know, you would have one first a business manager. And then you would have a manager. So your manager actually never touches your money. 
So your money first goes to the business manager. He takes his share. He divvies it up how it's supposed to be. You get you you get paid from your business manager for your live work. Yeah, that your manager, whether he's booked it through the booking agents or however he's done it, then he takes his he gets his share from the business manager. And then if let's say for instance you're you know Keith Urban and you also were lucky enough and you did a bunch of sessions for instance. Um, if you're a singer, there's a, the union is called AFTRA. And so if I had a, an AFTRA singer sing on a record, I would write two checks. I'd write one to them for their, you know, for their pension and their, you know, their, um, their, their, um, their pension fund and their health fund. Um, and then I would write one check to the, the singer. If, you, if we were doing a session with five or six musicians, uh, whether I was the band leader or he had us another band leader, we will all be union members and the band leader would get paid as a band leader, um, pending what the session was, whether it was what they call a demo session, a limited pressing session, a master scale session, whatever it was, then different levels of payment would come and then it would go to the union and the union would then do the same, take the pension check out, take the money out, and so you would pay, let's say it was $250 for that guitar player. Well, it might be $275 and $25 goes into your health fund. And, uh, and then the rest goes to, uh, to the player. And is that system um, still holding up in the day and age yep. more in uh, yep. artists trying to fund themselves? Yep. Right. It's still visible today. Right. Um, so if you choose not to be a union member, it's up to you. But... Um, you know, it's still like musicians that play on master scale sessions that our union members really benefit from it. Yeah. Um, so, um, I mean, I'm, I'm all for some type of union here for the gig economy people. And I'm not just talking about musicians. This is people who work in hospitality, um, uh, you know, people in, in tourism. There's no one representing us at all. And so these things happen. It's easy for the government to just get on there. And, and this is federal and state government, you know, both sides of the fence. They get on there, they'll sort of, you know, throw bread to the pigeons and they actually do nothing. And we have nowhere to go. We have nowhere that happens. You know, the hotels, you know, the, these hotels that can stay open till four or five in the morning because of poker machines. And they're, all they're doing is ripping off, they're either ripping off people who are addicted or there's money laundering going on, I reckon. That's just, I have no fact of that, so don't get up me about that. That's my opinion. But um, I reckon if they, can, if they can get stay out until those hours, why, why shouldn't they have to employ a musician every night of the week? Yeah, exactly. Well, I think, you know, but the trouble is, is the way they, I mean, I, I agree with you, the whole COVID thing has certainly shown you that they don't really care too much about the industry. Um, they let it fail. Um, and they, and they, also, don't think it, they don't think of it as a big money industry, but it's a huge money industry. The thing that the thing that gets me is who's the first people to come to any rescue when there's a big problem. Exactly, the fires this year, mate. That will get more fires across the country, and there's going to be concerts put on to help everybody. I can tell you. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's just ludicrous. It really is. But um, yeah. but anyway, that's kind of that's that's kind of how it works in that town. Well, I think we need uh, to be tapping into people like yourself who've seen that firsthand, and we need to be like um, you know getting that advice and getting. You know, I know that you hung out with some of the old boys in the industry today. You know, it's, it's us guys yeah. have been around for a while. It's now our job, I think, to start, you know, saying, okay, if we, 
the reason we have Keith Urban, the reason we have Powderfinger or, or Savage Garden, these things is because back in those days, going back in the 80s and 90s, we had a really fertile grassroots industry. People could well, make their, yeah, their money yeah. out of gigging. They could be writing every day. They could be doing all that stuff. But these days, my kids trying to do music, they can't make money out of gigging. There's just not the gigs there to survive on it. We've got to yeah. revitalize that industry so that the the Keith of the Urbans of the world can come through. And and then we yeah. need to have incentives for them to be able to stay in country in, in our state yeah. so that the, yeah. the industry is getting the benefits of them being funded here. And until the government takes that serious, I don't, you know, we, we have to start making a lot of noise. That's my, my argument anyway. Yeah. Well, and you have to, it has to be directed the right way, as you know, it really has to come, come down to, you know, where, where to hit that nail on the head that they actually will listen and, when we do bring the hammer down, it makes perfect sense for them to, you know, to hand as a nail, you know. Yeah. So, mate, I know that you had you were connected to everyone in America. So, was the election rigged? Ah. Who knows? You don't have to go down that road, mate. Don't know. <laughs> don't really know. Yeah. I mean. Uh, I, I, I kind of, um, like everyone, have been kind of watching, you know, whether we can even call it an outcome, but uh, I'd say from what I'm hearing, uh, the tables could be turning, you know? Yeah, so, it's, it's interesting times, man. I think there's definitely more going on than what we see. Oh, the, me, the media, the me, yeah, I, I see there's two things happening. In, in America, kind of democracy is no longer exist because the corporations have really they control that in australia we, i don't know if it's corporations that control it so much here but we definitely have party politics but yeah you, know, you yes. get people go into go into parliament they've got good intentions and it gets squeezed out of them because they have to follow the party line and um we can sit here and we can sort of point fingers at america but but mate, uh, i look at what's going on with the the mismanagement at the moment of our relationship with the china thing it's just that's oh, going to yeah. put so much pressure on us. The government's doing a terrible job with managing that situation. And I think all the stuff around the COVID thing too, we, it's all been so one-dimensional. We get such limited information. It's kind of amazing to me that, you know, the numbers have dropped severely at the time of heat waves coming through. You know, is there some, something there? I, I don't know. But I, I just like to see us talking about more than just, you know, if someone's feeling, comes up with a, a positive test, they lock down a whole city. I think there's got to be a better solution than that. Oh, totally, totally. I mean, I'm like you. I kind of think. What was it like coming back here, mate? Because you, 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 you got to have a beautiful 14 day holiday, didn't you? Yeah, it was the, probably the most enjoyable holiday I've ever had in my entire life, to be honest. <laughs> um, yeah, I was, you know, if I didn't have a steel guitar and an amplifier, I think I would have thrown myself over that balcony. You know? How were you treated, mate? Terrible. I mean, it was absolutely terrible. Um, the, the food was disgusting. Um, the attitude was not good. They actually thought that people were, you know, had, you know, the virus. They were treating you like you had the virus. Um, phone calls every day that were uneducated phone calls. It was probably the most ridiculous 14 days I've ever spent, you know. Wow. And, it's, and it's not easy, uh, 14 days being in one room and having a little tiny balcony. Uh, it was not easy. Um, I think I literally would have gone nuts if I didn't have that guitar with me. I did actually, I kind of prepped myself for it. And uh, before I left, I, I gathered a lot of um, like educational stuff that I could study while I was in that 14 day period, um, which really helped my brain. Um, and of course, uh, red wine at night with 
the worst red wine I think I, they, they had uh, in the hotel. It was tasted like, you know, raw vinegar, um, but, but it, it worked. And I was kind of falling asleep like nine o'clock at night and waking up at five o'clock in the morning. It was really weird. And they, um, the, there was no movies. If you wanted a movie, it was $18 to get a movie. And so I had the uh, SBS movie channel available to me. Um, and that was thrilling. <laughs> so that was my experience. <laughs> oh, mate, you must have jumped for joy when you got out of there. Oh, man, it took a few days to feel human. But um, it's really weird. Uh, I suppose it's like uh, uh, giving birth. Eventually, you don't think about the pain a week later, you know. Mm. So, uh, you so know. Mate, where, where, where to from here, from, from Mick Flanders, mate? What's the, what's the story? Uh, trying to figure it out. I think there's a lot of little opportunities. Um, so I'm just trying to figure out what the smart money is. You know, um, we've got our equipment coming over on our ship. Um, so uh, I've got all my instruments and all my my computer and uh, preamps and mics and all that. So uh, I'll be good to have that back. So you'd be um, producing artists out here, will you? Yeah, yeah. So and I've still got um, a few American projects going, and I'm sure that's going to continue. I've kept my American phone and phone number and my American email, and um, I've got a few uh, few lines in the water there. And uh, and I'm kind of you know having a look around here. What's going to be kind of exciting and taking a few meetings and. You know, I did a session last week, so I'm getting into the session world here a bit, playing some steel and dobro. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, see so what happens. I, I imagine that, um, yeah, are you finding that people are a bit hungry to, to tap into your knowledge, to tap into your... Uh, yes and no. You know, I think a lot of people don't really realise the knowledge. I don't think they really understand what really occurs in those environments. I think... And, and I get that because I don't, I think I, th I thought I thought a lot, I knew a lot more even by visiting. I, and I'd visited that Nashville probably, you know, 15 times or something before I moved. Um, and the same old story, you think you know everything and what to do. And, you know, you, you land there and, you know, you, you might as well be shipwrecked. So, mate, so you, mate, know, you don't. I'm sure a lot of young artists don't know. So let's say if they're trying to get somewhere, they're in that sort of probably country edge to what they're doing, I guess. Would, would probably be fair to say and they, they they hear you chatting about what you're doing and your experience and they 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 think oh gee it'd be great to have work with someone like that are you untouchable to work with like that are you easy to work with or and what do you bring to the table you just record someone or do you give them some of your knowledge and advice what happens well I, i'm you know me i'm always open to help anybody i do, I do but mate other people don't you know they can't, you come back from nashville and some young people will be thinking well how do you you know, get onto a guy like that to work with i mean i know that you'd love to work with young yeah, artists coming through yeah, yeah I, i'm i would like to develop some things that have potential to go over there and and just like we spoke about dolly i mean you know danny nozell is her manager him and i are very good friends i, I mean i can name a dozen managers that are heavy hitters over there that are very close with me. And I got a lot of work through those management companies. I developed some artists that they were developing, um, you know, recorded them and wrote with them and developed them and arranged it. And, um, so, yeah, I mean, I think if the, if the artist is right and it has potential, um, you know, there's definitely roads to take and they would not be roads of fantasy, you know, they'd be yeah. roads of realistic, um, goals and achievements that you really need to understand and I think that's the biggest problem you and I both know there's a bunch of artists over there from here from all over the world but from here that somehow have started 
stars in their eyes and they're over there playing bars. They might as well be playing a bar here and actually getting paid. Opposed to <laughs> over there, yeah. over there working for tips and then their parents are sending money over every week to try and pay their rent, you know. No, we, all, we, can, all, we all know what it's like to do over there. Yeah, we all know it's yeah. like the gigs in the States and you sort of come back in, you tell the story that it was bigger than it was. That's the way it works. Yeah. You know, you always build that up because it's great that you're in the States, you're doing it. That's great. But the reality is it's, you're probably playing, as you say, in, in a, a bar because there. Uh, one thing I found about Los Angeles was to really do something there, you had to be accepted as a bit of a local. You do. You do. And, and, and the thing is, is if a lot of people don't realise if you end up going, especially in Nashville, if you go and play the bars... And the majors know that because they come down and they watch people. Don't don't they actually do? There's been signings from Broadway. Yeah. Um, after a while, it's like, oh, no one's picked them up. They mustn't be any good. Yeah. Next, yeah. and, and then you then you wonder like fans like people say, oh, Powderfinger or Cold Chisel. Yeah, they never did it in the states. Well, why would they bother? They like you know have to go through the hard yards of slogging there with they well, come back to Australia and you know, Europe and make good money. Well, I know, um, you know, Bernard did the solo record, Powderfinger Bernard. Yep. And I remember sitting with Kim Buey. I don't know if this is politically incorrect to say this, but Man, I said... I don't care about this. This is all about chatting and gas bagging. So <laughs> yeah, well, she, um, Kim Buey was the Lost Highway A&R director. Um, and Lost Highway had Ryan Adams and Lucinda and blah, blah, blah. And I said, oh, so you've picked up the... Songbird record, you know, Bernie's an, he's an Aussie. Yeah, yeah. So she, she just, sh you know, she just shrugged it off. It's just a reciprocal deal. Yeah. That, that would move on. That was it. Yeah. So you knew they weren't going to get any attention. Yeah. Um, and it sold 500,000 copies or something in Australia. Well, I remember you know? when we, we, we got to meeting at one of the publishing companies over, over in LA. And um, at the time, they were actually sitting there listening to Paul Kelly stuff and asking asked our opinion of it <laughs> like, well, absolutely fantastic you know but they were like yeah. it's like another demo coming through for them you know it was just yeah, yeah it would have been yeah 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 what is this you know <laughs> yeah is this any good listen to yeah. it or no yeah yeah yeah, yeah. well yeah. the hardest thing is they've got so much so much exactly from so much and los angeles new york and nashville are the three hubs yeah. where the greatest people in the world go there to try and have a career. Yeah. So that's why you see the level. And then when LA and New York studios started to shut down, all those musicians and studio owners and whatever, they all went to Nashville. Yeah. So it's this massive influx of people. They were saying 90 people a day were coming to Nashville. Yeah, apparently so, gone crazy too. It, they reckon all those things. It was, well, just getting on the interstate and coming home if you were downtown was terrible. I mean, it was traffic became difficult to get around. Um, so you know, working from home became you know the way to go. And when and, I and, bought my, you know, then with, those house, then with those numbers too, like people don't realise that a big part of the industry over there, I found, was actually artists being kept off kept off the market. So they would get signed. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. To be kept yeah, off the market. Yeah. And it's all these things yeah. that. You know, if, if you've got an act that sounds like Nirvana, you don't want 10 other Nirvanas on the market, so keep them off the market. And these things that a lot of artists don't understand, and I think this is the opportunity to, to work with someone like yourself um, to get that extra advice as you, uh, while you're working on it, uh, and also about publishing and all these other things behind it. This yeah. is where we start. I think it's important, mate, you coming back into the industry, working so that that grassroots can be, be healthier, and we can get these people coming through. And, and look, not, you know, young artists have to realise that when you're doing these things, if, you know, if, you, if you're buying a plastic toy, you get a plastic toy. Some things cost a little bit more to do. But it's not like 
hundreds of thousands of dollars they have to come up with to do their art and their, their work. It's, it's yeah. actually very doable if you make a plan for it. You set out what yes. you're going to do and you head towards it. And, um, yes. and that's the type of advice that I imagine can you, you would also probably have with them at their, at their early meetings and discussions and how, you know, what are the budgets, how are you going to meet those budgets and what's realistic? Yeah. Well, that's right. And, and the beautiful thing now here is, you know, Mike Flanders now to Mike Flanders when he left in 2007, um, you know, now the tally decks looks very different, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, yeah. and the education's very different. And, and I think the other thing is, is I've really honed my skill set now. Yeah. So now it's even, that knife is way sharper than it used to be. Well, also that so, Teledex is now also full of um, relationships and experiences as well. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, um, you know, picking up the phone to any one of those guys and, uh, you know, no one probably, you know, I kind of consider a lot of the people really close friends, you know, because we, most of them in the Teledex, there's a relationship behind it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, uh, you there? Yeah. Sorry, I wasn't sure if that cut off. The other thing I think young artists need to realise is too, while those relationships exist, you need to be using those with some credibility behind them. So artists oh, need to make sure they get to a certain level where they've got momentum happening. Then those things can be used to help them go further. But if you can't make yourself successful at Ipswich or Rockhampton market, you're going yeah. to really struggle in Los Angeles or Nashville. You know, you've got to make oh, sure that you've got that early movement going on. Well, I think if people spend the time to listen to our chat tonight um, and then go and listen to get onto YouTube and listen to a couple of my podcasts, one of them is with Mike Kraske, which was the uh, chairman of Sony Music Nashville. One of them is with Tim Riley, which is one of the major radio pluggers in Nashville, came from Memphis. One of them is from Joe Kelly, who uh, runs the biggest radio CD distribution company in America. Um, I mean, they can see the connections. They can see what we could do with them if the quality is there yeah, right. and the finances are there. Um, so, and I did those, a lot of those podcasts in the latter part of doing the podcasting to, sh to basically help independent artists and to show them that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Excellent. Well, mate, I'm, I'm pretty excited about the, um, you know, as crazy as the industry is, I think there's still a bright future because I see what, you know, my kids and your kids are doing and their friends are doing and there's such a wealth of really talented people out there writing songs, playing music. Oh. And, you know, it's, it's, they're so far advanced from where we were at their age. Um, well, I think so too. And I think that, you know, you, know, you and Angie you know, produce talented kids and Chase and I produce talented kids and their job is to be better than we were, yeah. you know. You and know, they got, and I think they've got a much better global understanding too, you know, this whole thing of when I grew up, you know, the people in the Middle East were those mob over there. Now they're, they're their friends they grew up with school in. You know, it's, it's, there's the much, and they run the internet, they know more. I'll hear my youngest daughter, she'll have a, be listening and singing along to a song from the 60s. And I'll say, where do you know that from? And they just have this wider appreciation of everything. And yeah. um, I really admire yeah. them, what they're doing. And yeah, that's really, really cool. And I'm excited. I was going to say that earlier, you know, Caleb gets me hip to things that, that I love and, uh, you know, and I think that's what's great about having, you know, youth you know, running around on your feet at that age yeah. because we're getting exposed to, and we should be in, in the business we're in, we should be getting exposed to as much as we possibly can always. 
Um, so it's great having young ones saying, hey, you listen to this. And you jump in the car, you know, and Jasmine has her playlist and I nearly vomit, you know, and, um, <laughs> you know, oh, you're torturing me, you know. Uh, thank God Caleb likes stuff I like. <laughs> and they used to say, I'll oh, put dad's iPod on and just slit your wrist, you know. Um, <laughs> but, well, we should, I, I should mention too that um, I do intend that we, you and I have to be getting the show on the road as well together. Sounds good to me. Um, some gigging and, uh, you know, some of my best, uh, well, you've worked on most of my music, mate. So yeah, it's uh, my best moment to be working with you in the studio, but also on stage, mate. It's uh, like, you're nothing. Can to an opera house show, mate. Can we do that? Which one? An opera house show. We've never done the opera house. I reckon we should head towards that. Just make I sure these so, orders yeah. stay open and we'll just, we'll just rock the whole Australian yeah. record, <laughs> <laughs> That's next. That's, That's next, next, mate. Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll do um we'll do our gas bag in part two about um as we as we conquer the the local world. Yeah, our experiences getting in the front door of the opera house. Well, mate, I'm so excited that you're back home. Thanks for taking this time to chat about everything. And um, is there anything else you wanted to chat about, or have we covered a bit? Um, I think we're good. I haven't had dinner yet, so I'm probably starting to wind down uh, my energy levels. <laughs> Mate, well, you, well, you've got that. You got that red wine there that tastes better than the vinegar stuff now to work on this. Yeah, 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 yeah. A little glass of that, so I didn't bleh, bleh on you on the podcast. And uh, <laughs> did a, it's, uh, it's some kind of Malbec, and uh, had one rum after I mowed the lawn. So. Um, I'm, I'm easing in on it tonight. So. I'm, I'm re I am really impressed when you told me that earlier that you're still mowing your own lawn because I'd hate to think you'd uh, <laughs> you'd, you'd turn totally into not doing your yard, mate. It's, um, yeah, I actually enjoy mowing lawns. Funny enough, it kind of gives it's kind of therapeutic. I believe. I've written quite a few songs with the mower in hand. Yep, yep, I, I love it. I, I admit it, but yep. Right, it's good. It's good to have those moments where a screen isn't in front of you, or there isn't something. Oh, totally. Totally, totally. In this place we're, we're staying at, it's got a nice pool too. So I mowed the lawn and then dived in the pool. Yeah. Well, I still got to catch up with you and have a pool party there, mate. So we'll look forward to that. Yeah, you'll like it. It's got a nice view. You'll like it. It's yeah. up to your standards, mate. It's up to your standards. <laughs> <laughs> oh, buddy, really good to chat to you. And thanks so much for your time. And um, yeah, mate, um, let's keep gas bagging in the No pool. worries. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. I hope people listen to us. Thanks, mate. <laughs> See you, Mike. Michael Flanders. See you, champ. Bye-bye. Parks are all closed, locked up in chains. No children's laughter restrains, silence reigns. No school bells ringing, footsteps in the halls. No choir singing, there's no chasing balls. Politicians are acting quite civil these days. Not kissing babies or stomping on graves. Australia sails on, tacking into the winds. Not sure what tomorrow will From history's pages, our former stages Battled through hard times before Yeah, they suffered losses in planted crosses Then dragged themselves off the floor Sex 
sailed home Too tired for glory, too many alone Having faced war, then facing disease A terror before that we'd never seen Oh yes, it's true, we've been here before And our country spirit was built through it all We carried the wounded to safer high ground Walked through the storm and we found And from history's pages, our fallen stages Battled through hard times before Southern cross glows And dream time is calling us back to a place Where we knew our souls were free Seagulls are skimming low over waves Rain is now falling on dry dusty plains With people still wiping smoke from their eyes Nature is cleaning up big open skies Turn off the darkness, turn off the pain After the drought there'll always be rain Another day comes with the new rising sun And we run towards what we can become 